You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ed Harrison for Real Vision, and I'm about to interview Steve Keen, the heterodox economist, Australian economist, who a lot of you may know. And we recently have started talking to economists of a heterodox nature. We spoke to Richard Werner a few weeks ago, and I think it's great to have a body of thought in economics that will challenge our beliefs, that will help us understand how the market works, how the economy fits together in a different way. And I anticipate this is going to be a really good talk. We're going to go through endogenous money. We're going to go through the neoclassical model and what's wrong with that. We're going to go through why private debt is central to the economy, a whole bunch of things. Very much looking forward to it. Steve's a great guy, and I think you'll enjoy this interview. Professor Keane, good to talk to you, Steve. Good to be uh, chatting once again, mate. Not face-to-face this time, but uh, at least a video camera to video camera. So you are late night. I'm early morning. We got. I think we have 11 hours between us uh, right now. Yeah, 6.30, not too bad for me. Uh, yeah, and we've got 7.30 in the morning here in, uh, in the D.C. area. Uh, you know, <clears throat> a lot of things to talk about, but you know, I want to take it back to the beginning because you're what people would consider a heterodox economist. That means that you look at economics in a different way than the mainstream economists would. And when I was thinking about this interview, the first thing that I thought about was debt, private debt in particular. And I want to, you to talk through how you look at uh, the centrality of private debt in an economy and in terms of economic growth. How is that different than you might uh, see in a, a mainstream textbook? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, the simplest thing is that if you, if you imagine you go shopping, your shopping spend, spending power is the sum of the your income you're earning plus any way you can extend your debt. If you take you know, use a credit card to buy a TV set or you use a mortgage to buy a house, you're spending both your income and the change in your personal debt. Now, Economic theory says, oh, well, that's true at the individual level. This is the, the textbook will tell you this. But in fact, you are borrowing off somebody else. So when you borrow, your spending power goes up, the other person's spending power goes down. So your individual spending power can include the change in debt. But that's the opposite of the person who lent you the money. Their spending has gone down. The two cancel out. And the only way that personal debt will matter if you're a much more spendthrift person than the person you borrow from. So that's the only way in which they say it actually matters at the macro level. And they're completely wrong because they're ima- imagining you're, you're borrowing money from my deposit account of my bank. So if I lent you money, my deposit account would go down, my spending power would fall, your deposit account would go up, your spending power would rise, the two would cancel out to some extent, the aggregate would be less than the, uh, the increase in your individual debt. But you don't borrow from my deposit account, you borrow from a bank. And what a bank does, it says, Ed, that's a great idea that you could buy that house in fancy section of Washington. Uh, here's a million dollars to borrow it, which we give you and put in your deposit account. And we also record, by the way, you owe us a million dollars. We put an asset of your debt to us in our asset column of you know, loans that were extended to the public. So the assets rise and the liabilities rise at once. And the increase in the liabilities actually increases spending power. Now, you don't just sit there thinking, great, I've got this million dollars. Isn't that fabulous? And you're going to then service the million dollars to the bank. You borrowed that money to buy the house. So you transfer it to the person you're buying the house from. So that change in your level of debt is an identical increase in aggregate demand, not just for goods and services, but also for financial assets, which is 
where most of the borrowed money goes. So credit is part of aggregate demand and, the, and also aggregate income. And the way that I talk about it is saying that aggregate demand, the sum of aggregate, total aggregate demand in the economy is the turnover of existing money plus the change in debt. And I right. can prove that mathematically. Now, the textbooks say that doesn't happen because they ignore banks. And why do they ignore banks? Because it stuffs up their theory. Well, it's their theory that should be ignored and not the banks. You know, uh, it's interesting you would say that because uh, I'm looking at a uh, blog post that I reposted from your blog at the time on credit write-downs. This is from eight years ago. And mm -hmm. there's a screenshot of uh, a mainstream economist, actually a Nobel Prize winner, and he uh, differs with you. Uh, what he says is, uh, first of all, any individual bank does in fact have to lend out the money it receives in deposits. Bank loan officers can't just issue checks out of thin air like employees of any financial intermediary. They must buy assets with funds they have on hand. I hope this isn't controversial, although given what usually happens when we discuss banks, I assume that even this proposition will spur outrage. Yes, and it did from the Bank of England. <laughs> One of the great delights of the last decade has been that the Bank of England and even the Bundesbank have come out and said textbook writers such as, for example, a Nobel Prize winner, I'll choose one at random, Paul Krugman, uh, what they write in a textbook is wrong. Okay? Right. And this is the Bank of England, the Bundesbank, the New Zealand Central Bank, even the Australian Central Bank, the Norwegian Central Bank, all saying what the textbook teacher is wrong. Right. So, and that was Paul Krugman, by the way. That was, was, I did have an idea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting you would bring up uh, the Bank of England. And, because, and this is why I was talking about private money, because I was actually looking at the Bank of England's uh, account uh, of how money is created right before we mm. uh, got on. And there's a page that says, how does it work? It's, you know, it's their page on their website, which asks, you know, how do we create money? And they say there are three types of money in the UK economy. They mm -hmm. say 3% of money is notes and coins, 18% are reserves, and 79% are bank deposits. So basically what I'm understanding is, is, is that when you're talking about uh, loans uh, creating deposits, that's how 79% of the money in the UK is created. So private money, is what really is keeping the economy accelerating. Is that right? Largely. I mean, in fact, the fact that they include reserves there in, in, in one sense is correct, is another sense is wrong because reserves are money that actually isn't in circulation. Uh, reserves are money that the banks themselves have either stored in cash in their own vault, so it's not out there on Main Street buying, buying jewellery. Uh, I hope not anyway. Uh, or, or, or they have it in the, the deposit accounts of the central bank themselves. So that's reserves aren't part of the spending power. So it's actually 3% is notes and coins and 97% is money in circulation, uh, which fundamentally a lot of that money is created. Part of that money is created by, you know, you send somebody a welfare check, then that's that's money added to their account by the, by the central bank. So that's actually government created money. But most of that money, yes, is created by private bank loans. And what has actually happened under the cover of textbooks telling people that you don't need to worry about private debt. And that's what those textbooks tell, including certain Nobel Prize winners like Paul Krugman. Under the cover of that, which the textbook writers themselves believe and half the bankers believe, or more than half, we've had an explosion in the level of private debt. So using the UK data again, uh, when Mackie Thatcher came to power, the level of private debt in the, America, in the UK was equivalent to 55% of GDP. The most it had been between 1880 and 1979, when she became leader, was 73% of GDP. Under her and under Tony Blair, it rose from 55% to 210% of GDP. Okay. So I think maybe 195%. I think I should be thinking of a different country. 195%. I'll just check my numbers as we speak. Uh, but that enormous increase in, in private debt. Uh, happened at a time when economists were telling everybody, you don't need to worry about it because it just is transfer spending power from one individual to another, from 55% to 195% as it happens. Uh, so that's an incredible increase in leverage. It's part of what created the apparent prosperity of the period of neoliberalism. And now that we've reached peak debt, we've had stagnation because that credit-based demand has disappeared. So it, it's 
it's incredibly important and it's ignored by the mainstream. One of many things they ignore that actually matter in economics. So, uh, you know, to keep that going, obviously, uh, in order to keep growth going, it sounds like you need to keep accumulating debt. And is that really the problem? The problem is, is that you've accumulated so much debt that to keep the economy growing at the pace that it has been growing, you have to accumulate it even more. And that's very difficult given the ability to service those debts. Yeah, that's fundamentally the problem. And it's all about private debt, not public. This is the other punchline. Textbooks worry about level of government debt with this belief that we have to pay the government debt back at some stage, somehow thinking we don't need to pay back the private debt. And that's because they've got this idea of the cancellation effect. If we, and I've done mathematical models of the mainstream's belief that lending is from one, one non-bank to another non-bank. And I radically changed the amount of debt and it does have no effect on the macro economy. So if their model was correct, they could, they could do what they do, which is ignore uh, private banks. But because, they, because the model's wrong, uh, the level of private debt matters immensely. And then if you have a large amount of increase in credit, you get a large increase in aggregate demand. If credit goes negative, you have a crisis and a slump. And that's what happened back in 2008. And our problem is we have just too much private debt now, so much private debt, that's the greatest in the history of capitalism, that people are unwilling to take on more debt and for credit-based demand is low. And the level of demand we were accustomed to in the previous 30 or 40 years has disappeared. So let's let's talk about that uh, in terms of the debt, because things are, are a, a little bit different now than they were in 2008 in terms of who has the debt and also where the demand shock or the supply shock is coming from. Um, mm. When you think about 2008, you think about subprime mortgages, the United States household debt. Now, you, when you think about the United States, you think about triple B companies and you think about corporate debt. Um, mm. How does that play out in terms of this particular crisis uh, that we're going through, the <clears throat> pandemic? And and wh where do you see the 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 uh, the problems going forward? It's it's a complicated one, Ed, because uh, in one sense, corporate debt is actually better than private debt because at least corporations are earning a cash flow out of the debt they have. Uh, most of the debt that the private sector takes on, uh, they only get a cash flow if they sell an asset. The asset they're selling is the house, the house, and what you get is an artificial bubble itself, driven by the level of leverage that can fall over, as we saw back in 2008. But if a co commercial entity borrows, at least it's got a cash flow that it can support that out of. So generally speaking, I'm more willing to tolerate a level of corporate debt than I'm at a level of household debt. But the trouble is, this particular shock to the cash flows of corporations is gigantic. We've never had anything like it. And just to give one simple illustration of that, there's one of the many data series that the St. Louis uh, Federal Reserve maintains and what they call its Fred database, shows the level of uh, commercial and industrial loans uh, reaching about 2.4 trillion uh, back on February 26. And it's they crossed the $2 trillion mark back in 2016. It, uh, it reached a peak of $1.6 back during the financial crisis, so not a large amount of growth. It's gone from $2.4 to a peak of $3.1 in over the last two months. It's coming down a bit now. But that, that's the increase in gearing people have had because they simply had to effectively access their lines of credit, their overdrafts, and so on to be able to remain afloat. Now, that's, that is a huge increase in the level of gearing. It's in the case of those loans alone, it's about a 25% increase in debt in a couple of months. So the potential is that even if the level of demand returns, if there ever is an after the coronavirus period, uh, there'll be corporations will be carrying 25% as much debt and will be financially fragile and likely to fall over. So I see us having a financial crisis following on from the coronavirus crisis, unless we reduce the level of private debt deliberately. And that's why I'm now pushing my modern debt jubilee again, which is something I thought I'd never see happen, but one positive of the coronavirus, the impossible might be considered. Interesting, you know, and I think we should, at the end, I wanna to get to that, but let's, yeah. uh, let's dissect this a little bit because I was looking before this at corporate debt issuance and in the US, or perhaps it's global, we have $1 trillion of corporate debt issued in the first six months of 2020 alone. That's uh, much more, that's almost double what we saw in the, in the previous year. My question to you in terms of the leverage that you were talking about is, mm. 
is it that the, uh, these corporations are borrowing the debt, uh, the, they're, they're getting the cash, and then they're sitting on that cash? What, what are they doing with that money? Are they rolling over loans? How's this working? I've got to feel a lot of it may well be share buybacks. Um, and because if you have an environment where you, you can't see much in the way of profit opportunities or investment opportunities, and bear in mind that over the long term, the data does show that the main function of long-term debt is to finance investment, which is what you, you want to have happen. Uh, but for, for the last 10 years, given the stagnation in aggregate demand overall, the cause credit is so low after the financial crisis, uh, and given the, that low growth environment, there hasn't been a great deal of corporate investment. Most of it has been financial engineering, where people, firms buy their shares uh, using whatever money they can get to do that so the borrowed money could actually be used to buy the shares, reduce the number of shares in circulation and effectively drive up the share price, which then rewards the carpetbaggers, I'm sorry, I mean corporate executives who run those companies, and, and they do very nicely out of it. So to me, it's a form of corporate fraud. Yeah. And, you know, my question then is what happens in terms of uh, when that debt accumulation slows? Do you want the debt accumulation to slow? Because it would seem that, OK, yes, they're accumulating lots of debt, but that, that's what's keeping the economy growing. Can, can they how long can they continue that? Uh, and, and also, why would you want it to stop? Why would you want the gravy train to end when it means a huge economic calamity? Well, this is the reason why I don't want it to end in the way that the private sector would do it, because Irving Fisher put this very, very well back in the Great Depression. He had the only sensible explanation for the Great Depression during it, which was that it was a debt deflation. And he said what happens when it, he says capitalism is always out of equilibrium. He, he learned that the reason he got it so wrong in the 1920s was he believed in an equilibrium model. So he rejected that in the 1930s after the equilibrium model had sent him bankrupt during the stock market crash. And he said, capitalism is always out of equilibrium. Uh, and that, so what, what matters most is when you have too much debt and too low a rate of price inflation. And he said, if you start in those circumstances and then you have a crisis, people will try to pay their debt down. One way they'll do it is reduce their prices to try to attract customers in through their doors rather than their competitors' doors, and then use the cash flow to pay off debt. But because everybody is doing that, the price level falls. Everybody pays the, the debt down. They reduces the money supply. You actually have a fall in debt and a fall in the money supply at the same time. And the fall in the money supply means the rate of turnover money slows down even more. And you actually have the debt level ratio rising as the debt level falls. Now, if you look at the data back in 1930 to 32, it's precisely what happened. Private debt was falling between 1930 and 1932, while the debt level rose by about 110% to about 150% of GDP. So I call that Fisher's paradox. Now you don't want to experience Fisher's paradox again. Yeah. The, private, the private sector does it on its own, it'll cause an acceleration of the downward process. So you have to have the government doing it uh, and in the, going the opposite direction, providing money which replaces the cancellation of private debt-based money. And right. that's what I, yeah, that's what I'd like to see. Whether it happens, I prefer it by debt jubilee. But if it's done by the government spending at the same time and giving a cash flow to corporations out of fiat created money, then that's better than not having uh, just relying upon the credit system alone. And it sounds a lot like uh, Richard Koo's balance sheet recession when you talk about the debt deflation. Is that how you're thinking about it as well? Yeah, Richard's. Um, I mean, there's a few people who have been. Um, non-orthodox thinkers about money for a long time, Richard Koo, Richard Werner, Michael Hudson, myself, and Pettifor. Uh, you have this long history of people being aware of the role of credit and debt in a capitalist economy. And we've all had different perspectives on the same elephant in the living room. Now, the mainstream says there is no elephant in the living room. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Right. And, you know, when you mention Michael Hudson, immediately I think about an article that uh, you co-wrote with him uh, about uh, what I would call um, bastardized MMT. And, mm. and what I mean by that is that for a long time, Michael Hudson's talked about the fire sector. That's uh, financial mm. 
the financial services industry and the insurance industry and the real estate industry to combined yeah. and how th that that particular segment of the economy is very financially very politically savvy mm. and ultimately when you talk about the government uh, you know taking over for the spending when the private debt is deflating really uh, what Michael Hudson seems to be saying in this article with you is is, is that actually what they're there it's a way of mm -hmm. money off to the fire sector can you explain how that's yeah. different from you know a, a solution that you would have or maybe someone who was an MMT proponent would have yeah um, um, the, point, the point of that article was that MMT is correct about the creation of government money uh, but in our opinion not paying sufficient attention to where that money is is, is uh, created and when you have things like quantitative easing that creates money on on Wall Street not on Main Street and as Michael put it beautifully in a seminar we were at once once uh, in the last few years he said the Greenspan's helicopter or Bernanke's helicopter is flying over Wall Street not over, over Main Street so what you have with things like quantitative easing is the central bank using its money creation power which is unlimited uh, to create money, which ends up in the financial sector. So QE was a, a, a decision that for indefinite period in the open market operations, the central bank is always doing with the private financial sector to try to maintain its target interest rate, buying and selling bonds to try to keep the bond price within a you know, quarter of a percent either side of its target rate. Uh, it was going to be on the buy side to the tune of 80 billion per month, which is one trillion per year, pretty much. So that's meaning that you're getting $1 trillion of government-created money created by the central bank alone without any involvement of the Treasury going to Wall Street. Now, what did they do with that $1 trillion? Well, they've got, their, their, their bonds went down by $1 trillion. Their cash goes up by $1 trillion. All they're legally allowed to buy is financial assets. They can't buy bonds because that's the market's been cornered by the Fed. They buy shares. And that's driven up the share prices dramatically. You know, from if you think you know the bottom of the S and P was what six hundred and sixty six. I never know what the top is, but the bottom was six sixty six, which I really love. And then it went up to thirty four hundred, I believe, in February. That was the yeah. Top. Now that's that's the scale of increase, and fundamentally, it's been driven by QE and share buybacks, where QE is actually financed a lot of those share buybacks as well as some of the private borrowing we we're talking about beforehand. Now, how much of that money actually turns up on Main Street? Well, if you just simply if, if imagine that the one trillion dollars of money to, to buy shares ended up as one trillion of cash in share owners who sold that to the financial sector, and then that one trillion they may have spent a hundred billion buying a new Lamborghini or you know a new chef for their for their uh, holiday house. Uh, that you might have got a hundred billion out of the trillion into the real economy. So rather than the sort of multiplier effect people talk about for government spending, this is a subtractor effect. Most of the money ended up on the financial sector, a small amount dribbled into Main Street. That's a very ineffective way of using the government's money creation capability. What we're saying is you should go not to Wall Street, but to Main Street. You should use the same capacity to create money, to put that money into Wall into Main Street, where not only will it get to people who actually are you know, poor or middle class, it'll, they'll also spend it because guess what? They're poor or middle class and they've got to spend more than the rich do of the money they have. So it's much more effective for that sort of creation of money to end up on Main Street than Wall Street. And what's the net effect of redistributing this money in that way? That is, 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 is that to the degree that the government creates money and it goes to people with a higher marginal propensity to spend, as you're saying, does that decrease the debt overall in, in the private sector or does it increase the GDP and therefore that ratio? Um, yeah goes down. It's more the ratio in the, in the first instance. I would like to reduce the private debt as well. That's my debt jubilee idea we'll talk about shortly uh, when you want to get onto that. But fundamentally, uh, one, one important thing I've learned since those articles with Paul Krugman, our debate back in 2012, is thinking about money the way an accountant does in terms of assets, liabilities and equity. And I've built a software package, Minsky, which you're probably aware of, that actually lets you build financial models of the economy using double entry bookkeeping. And as part of that, if you imagine a pure credit economy, in other words, an economy where there's no government sector, then the banks 
have to have positive equity. You cannot be a bank uh, if your liability to procedure assets, that's, that's bankrupt. So if the banking sector has assets greater than liabilities, the non-bank has to have liabilities greater than assets. Okay. So if we lived in a pure credit system, the non-banking sector in the aggregate will always be in negative equity. Now, if you're in negative equity, even though it's a necessity out of the accounting balance, nobody enjoys being in negative equity. So what do you do? Well, I go and borrow money from a bank and I'll go gamble on asset prices. So I'll buy some shares on margin and the share price goes up and I value the shares that I've purchased at the price the very last share sold for times the entire stock of outstanding shares. I imagine, in my own personal case, that I could sell all the shares I've got at the current price. Everybody else is making the same calculation. Well, you do that and wow, magical, you've got positive equity, so long as you don't try to actually realise it. Now, that's the, tr the mindset we get trapped in by a pure credit economy. If you have a government sector, the government can actually handle negative equity indefinitely because the government creates the money. There are now central bank papers coming out that have said precisely that a central bank can operate with negative equity because it's the country, fundamentally. Nobody goes and checks its books. And even if they did, what could they do? They can actually create artificial equity anyway. So central banks don't have to live by that rule. So it means that a government can actually spend more than it gets back in taxation. Now, if it does that, if the government is running, running itself in negative equity, the non-government, by definition, and this is where MMT is so correct, is in precisely the same level of positive equity. So if the government runs a deficit, the private sector actually has more cash. And therefore, there's less incentive for the private sector to go and borrow money from banks and gamble because the private sector could look at its aggregate books and say, we're in positive equity. That's OK. What's for lunch? You know. But instead, because we have this obsession from mainstream economists about giving the government into positive equity by paying its debt down, uh, that turns the private sector into negative equity, we rush off to the banks and gamble and speculate. So again, the mainstream way of thinking about it is completely, if I can use a technical expression here, comes from Australia, completely asked about tit, upside <laughs> bloody down. <laughs> I like that expression. That's good. That, they're very technical. I, I do appreciate that. Yeah, I thought you'd like it. <laughs> you know, um, so here's the question, though. Uh, let me play devil's advocate. Uh, isn't it true that this is this is how I would spin it? Isn't it true that uh, when you allow a government to think suddenly that uh, they can uh, spend whatever they want, uh, you know, have as many deficits as they want, then they will. And therefore, that will lead to bad outcomes. Isn't it uh problematic to think that, you know, we have an unlimited checkbook and therefore we can do whatever we want? Um, that unlimited checkbook had been useful on a couple of important occasions, such as the Second World War, um, where, for example, in the British case, the British deficit in 1940 was 40% of GDP. Now, what that did was mobilise you know, the, 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 we the weapons to fight the Germans. And if anybody said, oh, that's too much, that'll cause inflation, or oh, the, the English would now be speaking an interesting dialect of German. So um, it, it's yes, it's a potential danger. But when you look at the, the real world, the only times you find it has happened has been when there's been some dramatic destruction of physical resources, whether that's in the Weimar Republic, where the reparations took away a huge part of German Germany's productive capacity, still left with the debt servicing need, and they they you know they basically printed their way to pay their reparations back. Uh, the collapse in in um, in Zimbabwe was a similar thing with the wiping out the the white farmers and supposed uh, you know put across as being you know democratic. It was actually um, like almost a payback system, destroying the productive capacity and then printing money to keep it going. Those are the instances you can find of it. And if you look globally, you can find about four instances. Now, if you look on the other side of the ledger and say how often has been a, a crisis caused by private debt and too much private debt. Over the last one and a half centuries, there's about 150 cases. Right. And one of the person I highly recommend you interview as well as Richard Vague. You know Richard Vague at all? No, I don't. Okay, Richard, you love his last name. He's the least vague person I've ever met. Okay, <laughs> but Richard uh, was this, uh, the short story is that a successful banker started two of America's major credit card companies and is now both a philanthropist and a campaigner about the dangers of private debt. 
and he commissioned a research group to look through and right to the very detailed level actually reading ancient newspapers like newspaper from the 1920s and the 1840s and 1850s around the world to get a picture of all the financial crises that occurred 150 roughly one per year across the world six major ones uh, for the, you know things like the great depression uh, the 1890s crash particularly bad in australia the 1837 as it happens back in america um, 2008 obviously every last one of them private debt Okay. Right. So our, our, the, the devil's added question is saying, let's worry about the trivial stuff that happens almost never. So, you know, that's I understand the devil's advocate. We've been conditioned to think that's being a devil's advocate. It's actually going to be conditioned not to think about the important stuff. Right. Yes. And uh, and, you know, if we could sum up uh, where we are at this point in the conversation, basically mm -hmm. what you're saying is, 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 is that cre private credit creation increases GDP. At some point you reach, and we seem to have reached a level which is what you could ostensibly call peak debt. And yep. when you are at that level where it's very difficult for all entities to be able to service their debt, the question then becomes, does the debt decline outright and force a debt deflation? Or do you have the government step in in some capacity and smooth out that transition uh, to prevent the fall. That's one uh, possibility. And then the, obviously the other possibility is that you have a debt jubilee. But before mm. we get to the debt jubilee, which is mm. where you decrease the the numerator as opposed to dealing with the denominator, the, the you know, the, the actual output. Yeah. Where do you differ with MMT in terms of they say it's really the denominator. We really need to work on the denominator. We need to increase GDP. And the best way to do that is through deficit spending. Uh, it's not really, from my understanding, in MMT about the numerator. It's not about decreasing the private debt levels. Yeah, that's very well put, mate. Um, but it, it, I think it's because MMT is still an evolving area and they haven't quite worked this out yet. And that, so, like, I'm, I'm going to be critical of MMT, but only in the sense of saying you can improve yourself if you consider the role of private credit as well. Uh, you, you may have seen a uh, uh, Doug Henwood coming out with a strong critique of MMT and Randy Ray coming back and being quite, you know, <laughs> uh, rather dismissive of what Doug was saying. And as part of what Doug said, he said that, you know, Randy used to be part of the endogenous money camp. Right. A lot of important work. And suddenly you're no longer talking about it. And in replying to that, Randy said, yes, I, in, in retrospect, I do regard the endogenous money debate as trivial. And what he said was, what it, all it did was, it said, is that rather than the government, central bank controlling the, the money supply, the vertical curve and the ISLM, you know, the, the curve, vertical money supply and the standard textbook model, we're saying it's horizontal. So rather than controlling the control of money, you control the price. Okay? And that's, that's all he said the endogenous money comes down to. But that's correct in the sense that that is what endogenous money partly says. The government doesn't control the money supply of the private sector largely controls that the government can control the price. That's true. But there's also the role of credit in creating additional aggregate demand. And on that front, uh, I, I differed with not just with, uh, with uh, Randy on that front, but Mark Lavoie, who's, you know, uh, a very you know, famous and, and prominent post-Keynesian economist, because I was saying credit's part of aggregate demand. And they were saying, look, you must be making an accounting error there. So I had to work out the logic myself. And that's what I've one of the papers, uh, which is a paper in the Review of Keynesian Economics, I finally worked out the logic to say that credit is part of aggregate demand and aggregate income. Because when you borrow money from a, from a non-bank, there's a transfer of spending power, there's no increase in aggregate demand, credit does cancel out, that's the, the mainstream vision. But when you borrow from a bank, the bank creates the money, it creates a debt, it creates money and you spend the money and therefore that change in debt becomes part of your expenditure and the person you spend it on becomes part of their income. So credit, one of the insights of endogenous money is not just the government sets the price of money rather than the quantity, it's also that credit is part of aggregate demand. And when you do that, MMT should be supporting the idea of, yes, we should reduce the level of private debt as well. And we can do that using government money creation. So I don't see a conflict, I just see incomplete logic in the MMT case at the moment. Right. Yes. And what uh, what's the role of um, 
of regulation there, because uh, when I've spoken to Ann Pettifor, who's another post-Keynesian economist as well, she talks about uh, government regulation of private debt creation as mm. very important in terms of capping that level yeah. of private debt. Yeah, I think it's extremely important. And again, this is something, again, because the MMT is focused its attention on what the government should do. And of course, that's very important. The, the belief the government should run surpluses as being a crucified capitalist economies. And you know, Stephanie's recent book, Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, is a very important contribution in the opposite direction. But you've got to consider the private banking sector as well. It's not just one picture. So Anne's work there, I completely agree with as well. And you do have to regulate the private banks because, and this is where Richard Vade's work is so good as well, having been a banker, he knows what they're like. He was one. And he says, bankers will, if there's a, if there's commission in it, they'll create it. Right. And what are they commissioned for? They create debt. So they, when, when there's a bubble going on, they're all competing to be the first one to lend to the major in this particular industry sector. His particular example, and the reason he became a successful banker in his own right, rather than being just an employee of a bank, was he was in the, um, the oil bubble back in 1979 when the oil price increased from $10 to 40 with the second OPEC price rise, he said Texas was full of bankers lending money for re oil rigs in Texas. And then the price crashed from 40 to 10 again. So they're all basically bankrupt and they had to try to write off their commercial wing and sell their, sell their, their private wing to cover their commercial wing. He bought the, the private household debt wing at that stage and, and got into the business very successfully. But he said the, the mentality is to lend as much as you damn well can uh, when the bubble's going on and then go the opposite direction. So you don't want that sort of mentality. Uh, and this is where Austrian attitudes about you know, let the private sector rip are great for the, for the, that's what you want for the industrial sector. That's what you want for people innovating. Those, you don't want it for the banking sector. They'll cause bubbles and crashes, but they're the main beneficiaries of that Austrian vision. So I would be restricting what banks can lend to as well. And I would, one of my concepts, part of that Jubilee idea is what I call the pill. And that used to make people smile. Now they just look at me and say, what's the pill stand for, you know? Yeah, well, controls. Let's talk about that, the, the, that Jubilee and the pill. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So. But the, the pill I call property income limited leverage. And at the moment, what banks do is, if you want to go buy a house, uh, and you and I are competing over the same place in Washington, then the one of us that gets a bigger bank loan will win. So banks are willing to lend as much money as they can. You and I try to get more debt because that means we'll win that desirable property we're both fighting over. And that gives you a positive feedback loop between new credit for housing and new house prices. And I've done the mathematics on it. It's absolutely strongly the case that what causes rising house prices is rising level of new mortgage debt. Categorically, that's the case. Right. So uh, I want to break that and, and, and change that from, a, from a, an amplifying feedback into a dampening one. And that would be what the, the pill rule would say the maximum amount of money anybody can borrow to buy a property is some multiple of the income earning capacity of that property. So let's say the place you and I are, you and I are competing over in Washington uh, rents for $30,000 a year, uh, then I would the rule would be the, the, on, the, on the price for the thing, the maximum you can actually borrow is $300,000. Now, therefore, if you and I are competing over it, the person who would win is not the person who could get more bank debt because the ceiling would be set at $300,000. be the one of us that saves more money. And so you'd get a negative dampening feedback between leverage and house prices. The high, so that, that is one way of cutting out property bubbles. And it also... Uh, have what I call EELs, which stands for Entrepreneurial Equity Loans. I know there are issues about having a banker on your board, but this, but I would like to have the possibility for banks to lend and not take a debt position against the firm, but take an equity position. Mm. And that way, uh, you might, if you lend to six entrepreneurs, five are going to fail. But if you lend to, and if you lend to one, you get interest payments at the moment. You you don't get any increase in your equity level. But if you could offer an equity loan then you get, you know, the six, five of them might fail. The one who succeeds not only can pay the interest, but also you get a rising value of the asset you've generated by lending them money as an equity position, not a, not a, not a debt position. So various rules to make force banks to actually lend to the productive sector of the economy and not to finance asset bubbles. So you can't do it without regulating banks in that sense because a banking licence 
is a is a public good and you shouldn't let it be abused by private excess which is what we've done for the last 50 years right there are a lot of different ways i can riff off of what you said but immediately i thought about uh the bank licensing practice because i think back to the 1800s in the united states when banks were actually issuing their own money that you uh you know when you deposited your money and you wanted to take the money out it would actually have on the uh, on the money you know that it was from this bank you know it was their money but through the the process of having a central bank uh we now realize that the central bank is saying okay what was private money is actually we're going to make it government money so when you take money out of the bank you're actually getting government money not uh, private money Mm. and for that uh, uh, you know because we're giving you the bank this uh uh this advantage we're going to regulate you and so that's the trade-off that we're making in the system to me that seems like a very good trade-off but a lot of people have uh they like the concept of transforming private money into government money, but then not regulating what happens with the banks. Now, that's extremely eloquent and extremely sensible, okay? Because uh, if you do think about it, you go back to the, 19, the 1800s, as you know, that's the period they call the wildcat banking period, where you did have private banks and they would issue their own banknotes. And what the reason they call them wildcat, as you'd be aware, is that when you wanted to get your money back, uh, the bank branch where you're told you could get your money back is where the quote unquote where the wildcats are. <laughs> okay. And uh, when the bank regulators went around to see just how much they were backed by other forms of assets, uh, they'd find things like you know there'd be this chest showing this is all the all the gold coins we have, and then you'd scrape off the top of the gold coins and you'd find a whole lot of old rusty nails. So all sorts of fraud were part of it. Um, so fraud was a huge part of banking because there's no easier way to make money than to be a bank. In right. that sense. Okay, so when you say a bank can actually issue a deposit which is one for one recognised with government money, that is an enormous gift by the government to the private sector, and that gift should come with responsibilities. And in fact, what we've had is because it's been so long since we had this era of private notes, we don't realise that banks used to issue their own money, not government money. Now, when you say it's government money, then they've got the backing of the government sector. And in that sense, they are a public enterprise and they should be controlled and from not so much control, but they shouldn't be allowed to commit fraud and call it business. And fundamentally, what we've done is they have committed fraud and called it business. So, yes, you're quite right that that very fact that the notes they issue, that deposits they have are one for one convertible to government money, gives them a a, a level of of, uh, public backing and solidity which comes out of not them, but not out of them, but out of the public sector itself. So right. they have, they have, uh, they have been given a gift by the public sector. There are responsibilities that go with that gift, and we should enforce them. And we haven't been doing it because we believe that we, we believe them that they're God's gift to creation. You know that they're they're, they're God's gift to. Well, I won't say God gives to women, but a lot of them believe it. <laughs> uh, but but they believe that they they they're the they're, what the masters of the universe. Bullshit. You're the, you're, the, you're the sorcerer's apprentice. You're not the master at all. And if you want to go back to being master of the universe, start issuing your own private money and see what happens. Right. Yes, exactly. And, you know, mm. there's a second uh, thing I want to riff off of that answer that you gave before about uh, property, because mm. I've been thinking about it from uh, the Henry George perspective. He is a political economist uh, from the late 18th, uh, late, late 19th century, early 20th century, who talked about uh, rentiers. Uh, mm. And, um, you know, basically he felt that land value was a huge problem in terms of people basically just, uh, you know, accumulating wealth and that this is really a big uh, problem, rentiers within the system, accumulating wealth, and holding on to that wealth. Can you talk about that? Because I know that you've spoken about this whole, the rentiers of, of society being a, a problem in terms of how the distribution is done. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say quickly that the Henry George uh, focus upon land taxes, effectively like with the vitamin C of economics, you know, you just add land tax, everything is gonna be perfect. Uh, that has denigrated the focus which George had 
as you've correctly emphasised, on on controlling rentiers. In other words, meaning that you, you you're quite happy to make people uh, earn uh, earn a living by an honest day's work as a wage labourer. Quite happy to have them learning uh, earning a profit as an entrepreneur or as an effective manufacturer. The danger in capitalism comes from people who own assets getting increased in their wealth simply because they own assets, society as a whole is rising and they benefit from that because the asset rises in value and they benefit. And that's the target not just of Henry George, but also of Ricardo. Mm. If you read Ricardo properly, and most people don't read Ricardo, let alone read him properly, he says his whole focus is on getting money out of the hand of rentiers into the hand of capitalists. He argued that workers would fundamentally be paid a subsistence wage. Uh, so if you could reduce the cost of subsistence, which was bread back then, fundamentally, then you would reduce the, the, the wage, not affecting the real uh, standard of living of workers. Workers would still get the same amount of bread, but they would pay less to the landlords who owned the land where the bread was farmed and more would go to the industrialists as profit and you get a longer period of a more sustained period of growth. So in that sense, Henry George is repeating the argument of David Ricardo, but focusing just on that particular issue of reducing rentier income and meaning if you're going to get income, you've got to either work as a worker or earn it as a capitalist and minimise the amount that goes to rentiers. And that's been a, you know, it's been an important message in capitalism, which we've lost um, by actually ending up uh, eulogising the rentiers. And the banking sector is the main support for rentiers because it's their debt that lets those rentiers buy the property. Right. And, and, you know, when I think about it in the modern context, increasingly I'm thinking about it from an intellectual property perspective, uh, you know, because it's almost identical in terms of you own this property, this intellectual property now, mm. not uh, tangible property, but you can therefore extract rent from that property uh, and 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 you're not doing anything productive with that per se. So if you think about um, the uh, Amazon might come out and they have a um, they have a patent for how you swipe left or swipe right to have a one click on your uh, your mobile device. They're earning a huge amount of uh, rental value out of that particular patent. Is that the new uh, Henry George, uh, you know, rentier type of system? To some extent, but at the same time, uh, uh, it's it's something which you have innovated something new. I mean, land Henry George focuses on simply buying residential land, having the proper population increase because you have residential land or you have land, say farming land, which now becomes residential, you benefit from the rezoning. So you haven't done anything creative out of it. When somebody comes up with a new technology, then that is in its own sense creative. And you do actually want to emphasize that in capitalism. The trouble is when you get things like the example you've just given, which actually conflicts with development. So for example, you and I hop in a car. Mm -hmm. Okay. Where's the, and you would say it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, well, it doesn't matter, manual or automatic. Where's the accelerator? Which foot's the accelerator? On the right. Okay, that's true in every country in the world. Now, if you had the sort of patent you're talking about a moment ago, they, they patent swipe left. Well, if you haven't had a car, we've patented the accelerator being for the right foot. You'd hop in a car and put your foot down and find you're hitting the brake. And hit. In, you know, I mean, I, I've actually, I actually once had an accident where I got hit by a dog. 40 kilos of, of, of matter moving at 40 kilometres an hour, hitting me on a beach and smashing my leg so badly uh, that I couldn't use the accelerator or the brake. I had to use my left left foot for both the accelerator and the brake on the way. It was an exciting journey, let me tell you. Okay. So, so there's some things you want a convention to rule, not something stupid like a patented swiping right or swiping left. But So that's the thing I don't want to see patented. You're going to say what it actually is creative. That is... That is, in a sense, that is laying out territory and saying, I'm marking that territory as my own uh, and excluding other people and not enabling a social benefit. But if you come up with a new technology and you know, if the, the, the things like, for example, a rocket that lands on it that come back and land on Earth, um, you would like that to be something which you got benefit out of for some period of time. You can get the benefit by being the very first to do it. Nobody catches up with you. And that's the case, of course, with SpaceX and Musk on that front. But there are some areas where you'd like to preserve. If you invent a new concept, you want to get a, a cash flow benefit for a period of time, but benefiting you as the innovator. 
Now, the classic instance where patents don't do that, you know, you know the expression of what they call the Mickey Mouse clause? Mm, no. Okay. Mickey Mouse, of course, was invented by Walt Disney. And just, only just recently has the patent on, Walt, on Mickey Mouse expired. Uh, but that every, whenever it's about to be expired, Walt Disney Corporation lawyers, long after Walt Disney died, would come along and lobby Congress to extend the copyright. Right. So it was supposed to be a 25-year copyright for the benefit of Walt Disney and maybe his heirs for a few years became a 75-year monopoly. And that is the abuse of patent power. So I would use, I would allow patents to benefit the innovator for a defined period of time before the idea can be ripped off by somebody else. Uh, and there's a balance between the two. You know, there's sometimes you'd want patents to be short, other times longer. Certainly the whole idea that uh, Walt, Walt Disney's great-great-grandchildren were getting money from Mickey Mouse, that's a very Mickey Mouse idea. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've, uh, I've uh, uh, veered the conversation off onto a, because I still want to go back to that whole uh, private debt jubilee um, yeah. thought. Because where we were is talking about the numerator and the denominator. Yeah. That is, is, is that the numerator is the debt and the denominator is the output, GDP, whatever you want to call it. And yep. when you look to increase the output, that, that uh, number shrinks. Uh, yep. But when you look to decrease the amount of debt, that number also shrinks. How do you go about doing that, decreasing the debt in a debt jubilee in a way that is fair and is not chaotic? Very good point again. And the basic story is that there, uh, there are two ways we can create money in a capitalist economy. The government can spend more than it gets back in taxation and have that financed by the central bank, which creates fiat money. Or private banks can lend out more than they get back in repayments, which creates additional credit money. Now, because we've had this obsessive idea that there should be no fiat money creation, this again comes out of neoclassical textbooks and Austrian thinking as well, uh, we've allowed too much private debt to be created. So if you look at the level of money in America, the increase in debt, increase in the amount of money in circulation has fundamentally been increased in credit-based money. Now, if you get to the stage where you go to a reversal of that by people paying their debt down. You get Fisher's paradox. People reduce their debt level and the debt debt ratio rises because the reduction in money, given the fact that money turns over, the, the impact that has upon demand is actually greater than the reduction in debt. So your numerator falls by, say, uh, 10% and your denominator falls by 30 And you have an increase in the ratio and a crisis like the Great Depression. To put numbers on that, Ed, because you've done you know, a great uh, point by raising that, raising that point, if you go back to the Great Depression and mm -hmm. take a look at the level of debt uh, in 19, uh, 1930 when the Great Depression began, it was 100% of GDP pretty much. And at that, that stage, credit had just started to turn negative. Uh, it reached a peak of 144% of GDP while debt was falling. Right. And credit was actually negative from 19, 1930, halfway through 1930, all the way out to 1935, negative credit with a rising debt ratio. So you don't want that effect to happen. So you can't, if you just let the private sector do it, you'll have a fall in the money supply, and that will give you a fall in the money supply, time to turn over rate of money, decline in GDP, and your numerator, as your numerator falls, you know, your denominator will, will, will fall even more and you've got a rising ratio. So you have to do something different. And there's something different is use government money creation capability to replace credit-based money. You reduce the numerator without reducing the money supply. And that's the idea of a modern debt jubilee. You, as, as quantitative easing has done, it shows the government can create money in a, by accounting operation. You use that accounting operation and put money in people's private bank accounts on an even per capita basis across the whole of society. Everybody who has a bank account gets exactly the same amount of money. If they have debt, then that money is used to reduce their debt level. If they don't have debt, they get a cash injection. And what you do is you don't change the amount of money in circulation. You keep the money constant, but you reduce the debt level. And you could also, if you're worried about inflation out of the additional spending power for those who are non-debtors getting a cash injection, uh, then you could also have a rule uh, where you require that money to be used to buy corporate shares 
where those corporate shares must be used to cancel corporate debt. So there's, there's ways to do this to get reverse the mistake we've made of letting too much credit money being created and get back to the stage where you have the balance between credit and fiat money that we had back in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, when you look uh, now during this pandemic at who's vulnerable, countries that are vulnerable uh, to peak private debt uh, and that you think would benefit the most from a debt jubilee, uh, what countries come to mind and what are their vulnerabilities? Oh, there's a whole lot of countries that do because there's so many that have a huge level of private debt. Uh, for example, one of them was one of the countries doing best about uh, the, the coronavirus, which is Norway. Norway's private debt level uh, has fallen from its peak, but it's still gigantic. Its current debt level is private debt level is 240% of GDP. So you have an enormous private debt level being carried. Uh, it differs. It's worse than when it's more household debt than corporate debt. Norway has a high level of corporate debt, uh, but also I think I think household debt is about 100% of GDP. Um, if you can take that debt burden off those people by rebalancing credit money and fiat money, then you'd get an enormous um, stimulus to the economy because people wouldn't be trying not to spend because they're worried about their debt service. But when you try not to spend, you don't actually increase the amount of money in the aggregate. You slow down how much money turns over. So by taking the debt burden off people and they're not worried about you know, servicing their debt, that actually spend more easily. You get a stimulus out of that. And if any time we need a stimulus now, people people being more willing to spend, it's after the coronavirus. So Norway, Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, the UK, America as well, because you're still carrying a debt level of 1.5 times GDP versus a minimum level before this whole crisis began of, uh, we're back, back in the 1940s, pardon me, of about uh, 45, 40% of GDP. We're all carrying about three or four times as much private debt as we should. So right. it's, it's, it's a very global phenomenon. We could all benefit from a reduction in the level of private debt. To, to finish off with a few predictions, where do you think policy is actually going to go? I, you know, I don't believe that it's going to go towards the debt jubilee until mm. we reach a, you know, extreme <clears throat> situation. Where do you see policy during this crisis, this pandemic going uh, over, say, the next three to six months? I think um, the same thing that happened pretty much with uh, the financial crisis back in 2008. The initial panic reaction is throw the textbook out the window and do what's necessary so that capitalism doesn't collapse on your watch. And that's fundamentally what happened in the great uh, the, the 2008 crisis. It's what pretty much happened with the cash handouts and uh, you know, and debt forgiveness and all that sort of stuff that's happened during the pandemic. Once people think the crisis is over, they go back and they go back and grab that textbook again. Not literally, but in their minds. That's the way their minds think. And when the panic is not there, they'll go back and say, well, we've got to reduce government spending. Now, they'll do that and they'll take away the supports that have stopped the financial system collapsing. So I've got a feeling we're going to see those same mistakes, pull back uh, support levels, try to reduce government debt when it's not the problem, as private debt is, and then trigger that private debt collapse by people, trigger people who can't pay their mortgages anymore to be evicted, uh, then cause a collapse in the banks themselves. So I think we're going to, you know, I think you're quite right. Unfortunately, they'll do, they'll do the right thing while they're panicking and the wrong thing when they think they're being intelligent after the crisis. Well, maybe we'll have to have an update uh, once these, uh, these measures come off, because in the United States, at a minimum, we're talking about uh, the loan programs coming off at the end of the summer. We're talking about mm. the enhanced unemployment insurance coming off at the end of the summer. We're talking about credit card forbearance also coming off. And as mm -hmm. you mentioned, rightly, mortgage forbearance coming off. And mm. uh, at, at that point, I think that there will be a reckoning. The question is, is, uh, you know, what happens then? So uh, to be continued at that point, Steve, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure both ways, mate. Very, very enjoyable to have somebody ask questions who actually really knows what he's talking about to begin with. Thank you. You're, you're, you're good to say that. I appreciate it very much. Very true.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.